Welcome to Balance Your Life Podcast. My name is Megan Farrell and I am the host of the show. This podcast is designed to inspire and empower you to start and maintain your own wellness journey so you can become the best version of yourself. Let's begin. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Balance Your Life Podcast. I am your host, Megan Farrell Gordon, and boy, oh boy, do I have a episode for you. This is something that has been really instrumental for my new year. It's something that I've been diving really, really deep into, and I know there's a lot of you out there who are also working towards financial freedom and health and wealth and how to invest for yourself. And so when I was approached by Andrew Halam, who is our podcast guest today, I was super interested in it. And I was right on board with him coming on because he's an expert here. And he is an expert in the financial game. So today, that is what our podcast episode is all about. Andrew Halam is one of the world's most prolific financial wellness speakers. Over the past 16 years, he has given hundreds of talks in over 30 different countries, espousing research on financial wellness, sound investing, and life satisfaction. He has been invested in the stock market for 32 years, having built a million-dollar portfolio on a school teacher's salary when he was in his late 30s. Andrew is the international best-selling author of Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expat. His latest book is Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. And on today's episode, we talk about pursuing the idea and concept of money from a holistic perspective, how to accumulate long-term wealth and financial stability, and where to start even if you are in debt. We also discuss how to find the balance between saving for your future and living your best life, tools you can use to help you on your financial freedom journey, and so much more. This is a longer episode, you guys, but you are going to want to take out your notebooks. There are so many incredible tips and tricks in this podcast episode. Not only is Andrew super knowledgeable on this topic, he's funny, he's witty, he has a great sense of humor. And I couldn't be more excited for you to dive into today's podcast episode. You guys know I am super into human design. Last week, last week's podcast episode was from my free masterclass called Limitless. And on January 28th, I am hosting another masterclass, Energy Flow. This masterclass is all about how to use the motor centers in your human design chart to understanding your unique energy flow and how to use it to your advantage for optimal health. So this is on Friday, January 28th at 12 p.m. EST. The link will be in the show notes for you to sign up for this masterclass. And this one, if you enjoyed last week's podcast episode, if you were there live with me, you are going to absolutely love energy flow. Can't wait to see you there. 
If you struggle with sleep, inflammation, anxiety, and pain relief, then you need to try Nature's Remedy CBD. CBD has been a game changer in my wellness routine. I feel like everyone needs to be on board with CBD. I take mine at night to help me with sleep, just a few drops underneath my tongue for 30 seconds, and I am out like a light. We know the importance of sleep and health for the body, and this CBD gets the job done. Nature's Remedy ensures its CBD is third-party lab tested, it's vegan, organic, cruelty-free, non-GMO, solvent-free, and it's made in small batches. You can even look up the test results on the packaging of the bottles. It's incredible. Email me today to personally find a fit that works for you. I will link my email in the show notes so that you can hop on over. Let me know what you are looking for as far as what you hope your CBD will accomplish for you, and we will get you started on your CBD journey today. Without further ado, please welcome Andrew Halam to the Balance Your Life podcast. Welcome to the show, Andrew. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks so much, Megan. It's my pleasure. I would love if you could give a little bio of who you are and currently where in the world you are joining us from today, because I know you're a traveler and I'm curious where you're at currently. Well, my my wife and I are full-time travelers, as crazy as that might sound. We my, my background is as a high school English teacher. So I was teaching high school English in Courtney, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. And I, I did a deferred salary leave where I gave a portion of my income to the school district or they would keep a portion of the income. And then I was able to travel for a year. And, and I did that. That was fabulous. During that year, they promised you that at the end of it, you'll get your job back and they'll pay you sort of monthly each month. So just essentially giving you that money back plus interest. And so that gave me a lot of freedom to travel and I never went back. So I ended up taking a job at Singapore American School, which is uh, the largest single campus international school in the world, which has 4,000 kids, K to 12, about 54 different nationalities represented in the student body, probably at least a dozen nationalities represented in the teaching faculty. I taught there for 12 years. So I taught uh, high school English and high school personal finance. And the reason I taught the high school personal finance is that concurrently, I guess, around the same time I started teaching high school English, or just shortly thereafter, I started writing for finance magazines. So I wrote for Money Sense magazine, which at the time was Canada's biggest magazine. So I freelanced for them. I wrote finance stories for the Globe and Mail. Uh, I ended up getting a column for Canadian Business Magazine. And then my wife and I decided we'd take a year off in 2014. And one year has led to seven going on eight. And we've been globally nomadic ever since and loving it. You've said a couple of things that I'm, I'm just like, I want to go two different ways with, but I'm so curious because our topic for this podcast interview is very going to be centered around the, the idea of investing for happiness, happiness, health, and wealth. And I, I just would love to back right up and like, why 
finances for you? Why did you want to write about it? Why did you want to be in that world? Like what, what started you on that journey and led you to writing and then writing a book about it? That's such a great question because people that don't know me well, Megan, have said things like, oh, you, uh, you must really, you know, you really like personal finance or you really like investing. And it's never been that for me. It's been, I wanted to be able to manage my money or control my money and so that I could live the best life that I could. And so I defined all of my motives based on living the best life. And the best life isn't necessarily having more, having more stuff, having more money. The best life is doing what you want to do because you're passionate about it. And what I learned early on was that if I wanted to become a high school teacher, um, I may not be building a, a massive level of wealth, but if I were smart about what I was spending money on and investing and if I looked at prioritizing my spending in ways that fit my value system, things that I would enjoy experiencing, like when we look at stuff, stuff doesn't actually enhance our life satisfaction. And there's all kinds of research suggesting that. So in the beginning, it was a really easy, it was really easy to relatively to write a book about just the investing aspect. And so I wrote a book called Millionaire Teacher, uh, and it became an international bestseller. But it was just about investing. It was just the investing side of things, explaining how to simply do it while spending less than an hour a year of your life doing it and showing a strategy that would be 90% of investment professionals over your lifetime. It sounds like kind of like, well, that sounds like something that's too good to be true, but it's actually... Uh, supported by reams of academic Nobel Prize winning evidence. And so, you know, if you ask Warren Buffett himself, how should I invest? That's how he would explain it. But after that, um, obviously, you know, you, you write, wrote an international bestselling book, and there are loads of people that are asking me to speak all over the world. And so that's one of the things that we've been doing is my wife and I have been giving these talks. So at big corporations like Facebook, we fly to a place like Malta and, and speak at a, at a massive resort or speak at insurance companies. But I noticed something kind of interesting. Um, and it was that people would sometimes chase money for money itself or for the stuff that money could buy without necessarily looking at it from a holistic perspective. And so when we left our Singapore-based teaching jobs, we did all kinds of really fun things like we'd rent a, a home in Mexico for a few months and rent a home in, in Ubud, Bali for a, a few months. And we just traipsed all over the world. And I noticed some interesting things where perhaps it was probably most dramatic when we spent 17 months in a camper van. Um, my wife and I decided we would drive from Victoria, British Columbia down to the tip of Argentina. And we didn't have a time frame. We had no idea how long it would take. And we actually didn't get there. We ended up getting to the border of El Salvador and Nicaragua. And there was a, a civil war or a, some civil skirmishes that were brewing. So this was around 2019. And so we decided we'd come back and then take a run at it later. But, but here's the thing, and I guess back to your point, and this is, I guess, why too, I, I really wanted to write this book that I've, that I've written called Balance, 
was that Megan, I'd meet these people who would be raising their kids in RVs and they might be Argentinian or Chilean or American or Canadian. And they'd be, I'm thinking of one family in particular, they would travel around Central America and they would play music. And she had a, a fabulous voice. Her name was Stacy Joy. She has this just gorgeous voice. And she and her husband would play these gigs. And I noticed that people like them were from an anecdotal perspective, from what I could see, they were actually happier with their lives than the people that would be hiring to hiring me to speak at these big, big corporate events. And so I'd meet people who are making millions of dollars a year at these big corporate events. And, you know, it would be a crazy thing where they would fly us over their business class, put us up in a five-star resort, a five-star hotel or a resort. I give these talks to these wealthy people. And many of them were really good people, fascinating people. But anecdotally, I'd make the observation that, huh, I would say overall, a lot of the people that I'm meeting in my travels as my wife and I were traveling around in our camper van were happier. So I started to wonder, well, how, how do we define success? And so many people would define it based on like the conventional definition, like Megan, I'll ask you, like, what's the conventional definition of success? The amount of things you have, the car you have, the house you have, the materialistic things that you have would be what I would guess a lot of people would say the private jet that they get to take as they travel the world and stay in five-star hotels. Totally. And that that's how so many people define it. But when you ask people who are conventionally successful, why they want to do what they do, ultimately you keep asking them and their responses will come back down to life satisfaction. Like they want to live the best life that they can. But then when you look at research on life satisfaction, like what is it? that allows us to live the best life possible. And if we're maximizing our lives based on those premises, then we're truly living the most successful life we can. So I identified success as something like a four-legged table. And, and I said that, you know, you have to have obviously some money, like you need some money, you need shelter. You can't live in a, in a, in a world where you know you don't have some degree of financial security you need to have strong relationships like relationships are paramount you need uh, your health and that can be mental physical spiritual and you need a sense of purpose like that thing that gets you up in the morning and i noticed that many of the people that were conventionally extremely successful if their lives were like that table and I would look at different aspects of those legs, they'd be cracked and splintered and ready to collapse. And so in many cases, it was somebody's health or their relationships that took a backseat to their careers. But then I'd notice these people living. And one of the things that, you know, if you go on the road and you start traveling and meeting people who travel full time, one of the first questions people ask is, well, how do you do this? Like, what's what, you know, how do you financially pull this off? And everyone shares their, 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 their talk and their, their ideas, what they're doing, their stories. And I found that uh, the people that anecdotally seemed to be the most satisfied were those that were actually earning some money along the way and were spending less than they earned. 
So they were still putting something away for their future so that they had some kind of financial, you know, if a COVID-19 came along, they could feed themselves and feed their families. So there was something that was sort of, they were putting away to their future. So when I wrote this book, Balance, I wanted to bring all of that research together to see what is it that enhances people's life satisfactions? How are we deluded in a lot of areas? And kind of a a step-by-step really thoughtful guide for I hope everybody to gain something from. This is such a great topic. And it's something I know when we were emailing kind of back and forth, you're like, I don't know if you would be into this. And when you, when we talked about the idea of having you come on and talk about it from a financial standpoint, I was so into it recently. I think about five episodes ago, a girlfriend and I were talking and she was saying how, you know, she's in her mid twenties and she was, she's at a point where she goes, you know, what's like in my life, she goes, you know, what I think is like super sexy is being financially stable. And she's like, previous to this, like mind blowing moment I had, she goes, you know, if I was sad, I would go and spend money on a facial or I would go out for dinner or I'd buy a pair of shoes. And she's like, I would look at my bank account and it would bring on stress and tears. And I would go through the spiral of being so unhappy because I didn't have any money. So the moment I got some money, I would go out and respend it. And she's like, you know, like she goes, I, th- I think it's sexy now to be able to like save some money. And there's, there's so many things that you were saying that were like, just like nail on the point for me. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm very much in this yoga world. Right. And as a yoga teacher, when I started teaching it, the first thing everybody said to me was there's no money in it. And <laughs> that's true. Right. Like I, I'm assuming even as a teacher, you kind of heard that along the lines is like, you're not going to become a billionaire by teaching or by teaching yoga. Right. But in my head, I'm also going, you know, I listened to so many different people speak and I think it was Dean Graciosa who said, you know, nobody makes all this money by doing one thing. They have multiple streams of income. And that was always in the back of my head. I was like, okay, like you, like, I love to teach yoga for me. That's like a purpose in doing meditation, but it's not going to be the only thing that for me brings in money. And I think where I was going with this, like being in the yoga world is that there are people who like very content to just live, you know, in a tent and like, just never think about money again. They just barter for everything. And for them that might work. But for me, I'm like, I kind of want to, live in you know not in a tent and stuff so where can I find this duality of like I'm not someone who loves to spend money on like name brands like I don't really care about having a pair of Jimmy Choo's but I also want to you know have a house and electricity and you know have have things without making it so materialistic so I feel like this is a whirlwind coming at you because I I also like, there's also this idea of like YOLO, like you only live once. So do all the things and go through all the money and saving all your pennies. And there doesn't seem to be this balance between it. I like you either do one or you do the other. You either save every money, all your money. So you have no life and your life kind of sucks. And you just sit there watching TV or just sitting on your couch all day, twiddling your thumbs, or you spend every dollar that you have so that you're constantly chasing money. And, you know, we don't always make great decisions when we're chasing money. And 
a conversation my husband and I have a lot as we were recently just talking about when he was younger, he's like, you know, I was always chasing the money in jobs. Like didn't matter what the job was. If the pay was good, I was doing it. And a lot of it resulted in like, now he has like incredible, like he's got two blown discs out in his back. And even though he's getting his health back, there's a lot of people who will jeopardize their health to make money. And we know that health is wealth. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I look at it as life is like an hourglass and it's black. It's a black, dark hourglass and you can't see it. You can't see how much sand you have left and it gets tipped at birth. And so the idea of scrimping until at some point in the future, when you're suddenly going to live, when you're whatever, financially secure, which might be 50, 60, 70, 80 is is in my definition, definition of insanity. Like it's crazy to think like that. I like to think of one eye on today, always one eye on today, because you don't know if you're going to get next week and then one eye on your future or down the road. So when it comes to life satisfaction research, and this is one of the things that, that I come to in the book that I really, really enjoy looking at is that the money that we spend on things doesn't actually enhance our life satisfaction. So all the research in the world points to this fact. It's based on largely something called hedonic adaptability. So when you buy something, for example, like a new car for a short period of time, that fancy car is capturing your attention and it's pretty cool. It's like a sugar fix, but before long, that new car or that new purse or that new phone that you just bought just has utility. It doesn't actually enhance your life. It doesn't make you laugh more. It doesn't make you love more. It doesn't make you respected more by other people. I like to think about the, you know, the, the campfire sort of analogy where if, Megan, you're sitting around with a group of friends and you're reminiscing, for example, about you're just telling stories about things that have occurred in life the previous year or 10 years previous or whatever it was, you're not going to talk about the things you bought. You're going to talk about the things you did. You're going to talk about the experiences um, that you shared with some of those people. So when we spend money, if we want to spend money on things that enhance our life satisfaction, it doesn't come from us buying stuff. It comes from us, purchasing experiences if we're going to spend money at all i mean the best experiences can be free but you can also i i use this point in the in this book where my friend and i took a, a trip to cuba and so many crazy things happened during that trip which were hilarious we did so many dumb things just not thinking like not knowing being totally ignorant but we'll forever megan be telling crazy stories about that trip and they becomes part, your experiences become part of your identity. And there's no, you can't place a value on that. It's like when you ask people on their deathbed what they regret in life. And I, and I referenced in the book, this woman named Bronnie Ware, who was a palliative care nurse in Australia. And she wrote a book called The Regrets of the Dying. And she would ask people like, what, what is it that you, you wish you did? Or what did you wish you had? And they all said the same kinds of things. None of them said, I wish I took job X. None of them said I worked harder. <laughs> None of them said they wish they worked harder. They were all relationship-based. 
regrets. They wish that they were true to themselves. So relationships, not just with other people, but with themselves. So they wish they weren't so affected by peer pressure. They wish they could you know, take the time to smell the roses and to be themselves. They wish that they kept in touch with friends. They wish they didn't get into boring routines. They wish they'd experienced new things. And you don't necessarily have to travel to experience new things. You just have to consciously say to yourself, I'm going to push myself in a certain capacity that's different. And it might be learning a new language or picking up the guitar and learning that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because when it comes down to asking that question about spending and saving, it's so important to live for today as well as live for tomorrow. But putting the science of life satisfaction behind what we're actually spending our money on is hugely helpful because when we get down that road where like so many people chase things, they chase these acquisitions because everyone else does it. And it's so interesting how we live in a society that is pushed by brilliant marketers. And then once all your neighbors are living a certain way, you start to think that's normal. You don't recognize that it's actually fairly dysfunctional to have all kinds of consumer debts for stuff that doesn't improve our life satisfaction. I would love to know, there, there's a couple of questions I have here and I just want to make sure that I'm asking them like, kind of like in the correct order so that I'm not confusing anybody. One, I just wanted to point out too, I love that you taught high school personal finance. It is one of, my dad says it all the time. He's like, they should teach finance in high school. They should teach finance in high school. Like, what is the point of knowing fractions <laughs> if you don't know how to save a dollar? You know what I mean? And it's so true. Like, even now, I, literally yesterday, I was on a walk and going like, I don't even know, like, I don't, almost don't even know where to start. So that is the question I want to ask you is someone's like, Andrew, I like, I don't even know where to start. Like, do I be, should I put it in uh, an investment? And then I know within investments, there's like a high risk, there's low risk. Do I put it into, I don't know if it's different over in the States, but like a TFSA, do I put money under my pillowcase? Like, like where do I even begin when it comes to starting to invest some of my money? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. And, and coming back to that, notion of them not actually people not learning this in school and that's a it's a crazy thing there's um when i give talks overseas sometimes i speak at different international schools and i'll play this clip by this guy named david brown he calls himself boy in a band i don't know if you've ever heard of him he has this youtube clip that that went viral i don't know maybe seven or eight years ago and it's called don't stay in school and and he's actually, he was that's kind of as a catchy lead. He, he's got like, you know, long, dark hair and, and he's got a strip that's dyed red and he looks like a rocker, but he's got a degree in computer engineering. And he's, he's really talented as, as a social media personality. He's put together some pretty cool things. And one of them being this video, Don't Stay in School. And his premise isn't Don't Stay in School. Like that's just his lead. But he talks about how there's so many subjects that are taught in school that are largely irrelevant and that, okay, you know, perhaps algebra 12 has merit if you want to become an engineer. But for goodness sakes, allow people to make that choice because 
I've certainly never ever used any of those skills in my career, you know, in terms of algebraic formulas. And in most cases, most people don't, but the things that people do need to know is everybody's going to be spending money and making financial decisions, just like you alluded to, Megan, like everyone is going to be asking those questions. We're all going to be dealing with complex relationships in our worlds too. Like whether that's with ourselves, with our spouses, with our kids, with our, with our co with our colleagues. And we don't learn about like conflict resolution. Like let's look at the behavioral science on conflict resolution, how people can get along, how to, how to motivate people, how to get yourself out of a, out of a, a, a tricky situation, a social jam. So the stuff that everyone needs to learn, no one learns. I mean, in school, you sort of learn it by osmosis and, Often when it comes to finances, your parents don't learn or don't teach it either. And largely because, you know, they're, they're, they're fumbling around as well, but money is like sex. They don't want to talk about it. And so they often don't want to admit that they're making mistakes or that they don't, they don't understand this stuff. So for me, I always look at, okay, back to the really practical matter. When somebody asks, you know, how do I invest money for my future? The first thing I look at is, well, what debts do you have first? Like, let's, let's have a look at that because paying down debt is equivalent to improving your, your actual net worth. So if you have credit card debt or student loan debt, odds are pretty high that that's charging you probably 6% or more, especially credit card debt, which could be 18, 21%. And so paying that down is so much better than you know, investing money in an RRSP or a TFSA or for Americans in an IRA, like forget I'm, the retirement account. I'm giggling right now. Cause that is literally what my husband said to me yesterday. I was like, maybe we should like put it into a, an investment. And I was just telling you before we hopped on, like we're doing renos and stuff right now. So credit card is like largely being used. And he's like, no, like that's, we should be paying down the credit card right now. Like the credit card interest rate is so much higher. Like if we make 10 bucks in an investment, it's not going to help the $120 minimum payment <laughs> that we're trying to make. So I kind of wish he was here right now. Cause he would be like in the background, just nodding along. And I just wanted to reiterate that because like, thank you for bringing like, that would be your number one suggestion is like pay down that credit card debt, especially if it's a high amount. Yeah, I would say any debt that's charging you five and a half percent or more, pay that down completely before you invest anything. And so like your mortgage, for example, is going to have a lower interest rate than that. And so whether you pay that down or not quickly, it is up to you. So whether you take surplus money and put it on your mortgage, which is a good idea, is you is is uh is up to you in terms of your personality like whether you do that or whether you invest money in your tfsa or your extra money in your rsp or your you know your retirement account but yeah when there's debt that exceeds say five and a half percent here's what it's equivalent let's say somebody has a student loan debt and, and the funny thing about student loans like we know we're in this low interest rate era but for some reason student loans aren't that low in terms of interest rates so many people are paying five and a half, six percent, seven percent a year on their student loan debt. And if you have a debt that's charging you, say, six percent, and you pay that off, any money that you put on that debt is equivalent to an after-tax guaranteed return of six percent made elsewhere in some kind of investment portfolio. 
So because nobody can guarantee you an after-tax return of 6% anywhere, like you can't. No one can guarantee you that over the next 10 years, the stock market is going to average 6% after taxes. No one can guarantee that. So there's no bond that can guarantee that. There's no money market fund. There's no savings account. Nothing can guarantee that. And so we know that if you have a 6% debt or a debt that's charging you 6% interest, money, any money that you add on to that, that you throw at that, that you try and chop that down, is going to be equivalent to a a post-tax return of 6%. So that's why I say if, yeah, if there's credit card, I mean, that's, that's another animal, you know, we're talking about 18% then. So yeah, high interest debt, pay it off before investing for sure. Amazing. And I just want to give a little tip because I had a credit card that was like, you're just going to cringe. I think it was at like 24%. And I was very mindful about using it, but it was still in the back of my head. Like, oh my, even if I put a hundred bucks on this, like that's 24%. I, and my dad was like, call the credit card company and ask them to lower it. I was like, well, that's stupid. Like they would have just given me a lower credit, uh, like the interest rate. He's like, well, you don't know unless you try. And I called and they literally like no questions asked. She was like, yeah, sure. It's like 8.6% now. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, why wasn't that offered to me originally? And just like crickets. It's like, so like, I've been doing that with all my credit cards and I only have two, but I'm like, I'm going to call and see if they'll just lower. Like, I, like, I'm not kidding you. They were, there wasn't like, well, what's your job? What's this? She was just like, yeah, no problem. This is the new interest rate. <laughs> so anyone who has like a 24% or 19, I think is kind of 19.99, like call and see if they'll lower it. Cause I was just like, that's like my hot tip of the year, man. I was like, this is great. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And not all credit card companies are going to do that for you either. With my, with my bank account, it's funny you talk about that because there's, a, there's an annual fee on my credit card. So I have a Singapore-based bank. That's where I was living for so many years and we're floating around and that just happens to be where our banking is. Anyway, so it's Singapore-based uh, bank card. And when I go onto phone banking, so I have a Visa card with them. And I don't know, it had a, a fee of a few hundred dollars, $300 a year or something like that. And when you go on phone banking, one of the options, like press number one, if you want to talk to a representative, press two, if you want to talk investments, press three, if you want to waive your credit card fee, it's like, oh my God, I could just press three and waive my credit card fee. Yeah, which, which I did. And I didn't even know that until a friend told me about it. He said he did that. So yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're not going to tell you, right. The, the, if they, how much money they can get out of you, they're going to absolutely try. And then, you know, yeah. when and you're it, like, and, Hey, and you're right, Megan, it, and it wasn't option three on the phone. It was like option seven or yeah. something. You don't have to listen to everything. Nobody hears it. Nobody they like whisper it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So step one would be to pay down anything over 5% as far as like credit card debt or a student loan or whatever you have, that's like over 5%, you're going to start to pay that down. What would be like the next kind of thing to start maybe making some money coming in? It would be to focus on a, like open up a a TFSA, which is a tax-free savings account if you're in Canada. And and you can, you can contribute, I think it's 6000 or $6,500 a year to that. And the monies that are made, the money that's made in that account is completely capital gains tax-free. 
So you don't have to pay any tax on that growth. And it can be pulled out at any time. But when it comes to investing, so if you're investing money in the stock and bond markets, a really good rule of thumb is not to invest any money that you might be needing within a five-year period. And so you invest it. And the objective, really, the hope is that it's for something long-term, like it's your financial freedom thing. It's not the thing that you would put money into to help with a down payment on a house that will be coming up in three or four years. And that's super tempting for people because they'll see that honestly, Megan, like since 2009, the stock market has virtually just gone up. I mean, the global markets, the Canadian market, the U S market, they've had very few hiccups since 2009. There's only been one, I think calendar year decline and it was quite small. We had a, like a blip in 2020, but that was a blip, like markets dropped, but then they bounced back up and they recorded like a 13% gain for the year in 2020, despite COVID. So the temptation for a lot of people is to say, well, I'm saving money for a house and hopefully I'll have the down payment in four years um, or five years. And wow, because my investments are doing so well or the stock market's doing so well, I should just put this money that I'm saving for my house down payment into the stock market and then I'll have more money and you know it won't take me five years to build a down payment. It might take me three and a half, but that's pretty faulty reasoning and it's something that we should not be tempted to do because markets can go down as well. So we've been lulled into this complacency where markets do nothing but go up and yeah, over 30 year time periods, when we look at rolling 30-year time periods, markets have always earned a pretty solid return. So I looked at the worst 30-year time period for the U.S. market, which started in 1929. So right on the cusp of the 1929 Great Depression crash. And the U.S. stock market, which is the one that gives me the best historical data, ended up averaging 8.24% over the next 30 years, including reinvested dividends, despite despite starting at that 1929 point. So long-term, like we should always be thinking of sort of 30-year durations when it comes to investing. And even if you're like an older person, even if you're like, I, I tell people this, even if you're 60, your duration, you're, the way you have to think is for a 60-year-old, the duration is still six, uh, 30 years. You should still think that. And this is, this is why I talk about that. It's not necessarily how much you're going to be adding money your account or working that counts it's how long you live that counts so when you're working you're going to add money to your investments and then after you retire you're going to be selling portions of it but it's not like the day you retire you sell the whole thing buy a yacht and then celebrate and drink tequila till you puke right you're not going to do that you, you know you're going to be withdrawing a sustainable amount so your money has to last as long as you do so i have two questions Number one, I'm curious your thoughts on a retirement savings um, over like a TFSA. Like, would you do one over the other? Or would you do both? And then also, <laughs> I, I know these are kind of similar, but not. What would be like long-term investments that you think are smart? Because I know like there's just, there's so much out there. And I know when it comes to long-term people, like I don't like long-term, is that real estate? Is that uh, stock in a tech company? Like what is that long-term that I should be looking at? The, well, back to that. First of all, when you are investing for your future, 
put money in tax advantaged accounts first. So in Canada, they set up two types of accounts that you can put money in. So one is a TFSA and the other is an RRSP. So with the TFSA, you put money in and theoretically it could grow and you could pull it out whenever you want and you won't pay any tax. With an RRSP, it's slightly different. When you put money in, you actually get a tax rebate from the government. They say, thanks very much for contributing to your retirement. We're going to give you a tax rebate based on your marginal income tax rate. So there's a calculation that they determine. You get a little check back from the government for contributing to an RRSP. But when you pull that out, regardless of when you pulled it out, whether you pulled it out two years from now or 30 years from now, you'll pay tax at what at that time will be your marginal income tax rate. So you're going to pay full tax on every dollar that you pull out. Both of them are really good. Filling up your TFSA first is a great idea, especially though if you're, I mean, one thing, another thing, I guess they're both great is if, if you can potentially fill up both of them, fill up the contribution room for both of them, that's great. I would say to students, definitely like people just starting to work or not, not earning a high income, fill up the TFSA first. That's super, super important because you're not in a high tax bracket. You're not going to get a lot of money back in terms of like a, 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 a federal rebate. If you're in a higher tax bracket, then definitely putting money into the RRSP can give you more of a rebate, you know, on that front end. So filling up both though, and having both is super. And then in terms of what vehicles do we do? Like, how do we actually do this? So the idea is that instead of investing or risking your money in a single stock or five stocks or even 10 stocks for that matter, if you were to ask Warren Buffett, who's history's greatest investor, and you knocked on his door and so you're like, hey, my name is Megan. Um, I want to invest for my future. What should I do that will give me statistically the best odds of success? Warren Buffett would say, okay, Megan, First of all, you need to diversify. So put your eggs not in one basket, but you put your eggs in lots of different baskets. And you can do that with a single type of product called an index fund. And so if you're investing in an index fund, let's say it's a Canadian stock market index fund. With that product, you virtually have exposure to every single stock in Canada. And this is a, what I'm going to say next is something that might totally floor you, but Here's the irrefutable academic economic reality that that Canadian index fund that you buy, where within it, you own like 300 stocks, 300 Canadian stocks. It will outperform 90% of professional investors in Canada after fees. And this just sounds like this is weird, like, ha, ah, that can't be possible. It's an academically irrefutable premise. And we don't learn it in school. And even the people that do know it and understand that concept, they'll say, yeah, but I want to be in the top 10%. You know, if it outperforms only 90%, I want to find the top 10. And so what people invariably do is they buy, often they'll buy mutual funds or they'll hire like an investment manager who might have a track record of beating the index over a period of time. But those that beat the index over one time period usually underperform it during the next time period. And so it, we're like dogs chasing tails. And which is why like 
a Nobel Prize winner in economics or a guy like Warren Buffett will just say, build a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds or ETFs. And so for you, for example, um, you can do it really quite simply with a, a firm like Wealthsimple, which is a robo-advisor. And you could say like, hey, I, I, you know, I want to talk to a financial advisor with Wealthsimple, and I want you to put me into a portfolio of low-cost ETFs, like a diversified portfolio of low-cost indexes, and they'll help you set that up. And you don't have to do anything. So you just essentially have money coming from your bank account every month. It goes into either your TFSA or your RRSP, and it will go into a portfolio that is fully diversified into a bunch of index funds. And you, you do nothing and the money will grow over time. <laughs> I literally feel like this whole time you're talking, like I'm kind of like in the background over here, just laughing. This I feel like is the power of the law of attraction because literally everything that you're saying, I had a conversation yesterday with my husband about this. And it's like this past month, literally, if you look at my phone right now, right in my internet, it says, how do I do in index funds? What the hell are index funds? Cause I hear these things. Right. And I'm like, what the, I don't know what that means. Like I got to learn, I got to Google it and see how to use it. And I just like, I'm just laughing because like literally these are the questions I've had. And I was talking to my husband yesterday about like, well, do we use a, a financial advisor? Do we just figure this out ourselves? Like, what do we do? And you're answering everything for me. Like I'm making notes as we're talking, which I don't usually do during podcast interviews, but this is all like, just so gold. So you would say like, like wealth simple. I think that's one that a lot of people, I mean, there's commercials on it and it's one that I know about, like, but you can just talk to somebody there and just say like, I want to put, I have a hundred dollars. Let's just say for argument's sake, can I put it into a few different low, low cost index funds? And they'll kind of like do it all for you, or at least tell you where to put it. Yeah, what they'll do is they'll do like um, a risk analysis profile on you. They'll ask you certain questions. And when you build a portfolio of index funds, the main, the main question is what percentage are we going to have in stock indexes and what percentage are we going to have in bond market indexes? Now, bonds, bonds are boring, but they're so much more stable than stocks. And so what a group like, say, Wealthsimple will do, and they're called robo-advisors, what they'll do is they'll ask you about how you would feel if, you know, what's your tolerance for volatility? Because stocks go up and they go down, but over long periods of time, and as I mentioned to you before, like even when you, 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 you measure an investment at the worst possible start time, like U.S. stock market, 1929, and it plunged, like the markets plunged 90%, Megan, from 1929 to 1932, like a 90% decline. So literally, it was actually an 87% decline. So literally a thousand bucks would have dropped to, I don't know, something like $130. But for anyone who didn't panic and they just kept that money invested over the 30-year duration, that money would have averaged from 1929 till 30-year into 30 years forward, it would have averaged 8.24% per year. But the, the part about the market collapsing or the market's dropping, now markets always go through periods where they will drop. Like that's just inevitable. We've had almost 10 years where we've had 
very few declines, but we will get declines. There'll be several of them during your lifetime. And the question is, well, how well can you tolerate those? So if somebody had something like 80% or 100% stocks, let's say 100% in the stock market index, and the stock market overall, the global markets dropped by 50%. Well, if they did, your portfolio value would drop by 50% in that given year. And that can freak a lot of people out. So when you add bonds, bonds don't typically drop when the stock market falls. And so your portfolio, if it is, let's say, I don't know, 70% stocks and 30% bonds, if the stock market drops by 50%, your money won't drop by 50. It might drop by 28 or 29%. And that might be just enough, Megan, to keep you on track, to keep you from selling at a low and freaking out. It might be just enough to say, okay, I can handle this. It hasn't fallen as far as the market as a whole. I can handle this. And I'm just going to keep adding money as I typically do during my regular sort of monthly uh, automatic uh, deposits. So yeah, they'll ask you about that, what your tolerance for volatility is. They'll ask you a few questions. They might ask you if you uh, will have a pension coming later down the road, because that's often bond-like. If it's a government pension, it's kind of guaranteed money that you would be getting in the future. So yeah, they make the process. Robo-advisors have made the process so, so simple. And so in the book, in the book Balance, what I did was, you know, obviously that subtitle of that book is, um, you know, how to invest and spend for happiness, health, and wealth. I assumed people knew nothing about this stuff, like zero, starting ground zero. Yeah, yeah. And so I described the stock market from the very, very beginning. I think I get into that like on the fourth or fifth chapter and, and then build in there and integrate it. So show people exactly where to go, how to do it, and what to buy. And there are different ways you can do it. Obviously, Wealthsimple is just one of several robo-advisors in Canada. And I mentioned them. They're all very, very similar. There are some people that want to do it on their own. It costs them even less to do that. But there's no emotional gatekeeper for that person. So if the markets drop and they freak out, there's that tendency that, you know, they don't have to call somebody to say, hey, well, simple, hey, you know, I want to sell because I'm scared and to have someone talk you away from the edge, you know, to sell on a decline. If you're doing it on your own, it's just you. So literally you could sell it with your phone. Like I'm freaking out and you can sell everything, which we don't want. Like that's, that's what most people do. We don't want to do that. So um, that said, I do describe how to do it on your own because some people can. And the simplest way is with single products. You can buy them in Canada. They're all, they're called all in one portfolio ETFs. And they're just, they're lovely. They're elegant. They're just a single product. And within that single product, you can have a diversified, fully diversified portfolio of index funds, or in this case, they're known as exchange traded uh, funds ETFs. Okay, perfect. So I just want to kind of do a recap of like one, pay off your credit card debt, two, TFSA or RRSP, three, the long-term index funds. Um, is there like after that, is there like high, what are they called? High risk? What am I trying to say? A high risk options or real estate? Like, is there any like fourth one that you're like, this could be a good good option for you or are those like the three that you kind of just 
really promote? Yeah, if you build that diversified portfolio of ETFs, it's, it's statistically irrefutable from an academic premise that you, um, well, you will beat 90% of investment professionals over your lifetime after fees. So once you're willing to accept that, well, I can be in the 90th percentile with this, there's no real reason to take extra risk because if you take extra risk and you end up in the, you know, beyond the 90th percentile, of course, there's a high, high probability that you won't. That which wins during one time period often underperforms the next. And so it doesn't take any, doesn't make any sense to lunge for something that's higher risk, like stay out of things like cryptocurrencies. And I know some of the people listening to this are going to find that to be extremely unpopular advice, but I strongly suggest it's cryptocurrency is a speculation. And so if you invest in real estate, you did mention that you're investing in something that has cash flow. So if it's a second property and you're renting it, then the tenant is literally paying off portion of your mortgage, that's fantastic. No, that's great. Uh, especially if, if you can get fortunate enough to have multiple revenue sources from a single, from a single building. So, you know, in real estate terms with all other things being equal, generally speaking, if it's like the same kind of neighborhood, the, the lowest yield investment is going to be an apartment building. The next lowest is going to be a single family home. Now when we get into duplexes, that gets better. Because with a duplex, you have two sources of revenue. So you have two tenants and you have only one major roof and four walls on the outside. So your investment yield improves. And the yield is, is a calculation of what you're getting in rent versus what you paid for the property. So when you do that math, the yield improves and the risk is reduced because if one tenant loses their job or moves, you still have that other tenant to pay for at least part of your mortgage. So this is one of the reasons why, Megan, like when you look at billionaire real estate developers, they do not run around buying like single unit apartments. They'll buy the whole freaking apartment, right? And they'll rent that out. Or they'll, you know, they'll build shopping malls and they'll rent each of those spaces out. Instead of buying single family homes, they want to buy like things like hotels. You know? So yeah, if at all possible you know, increasing our yield, reducing our risk by having some multiple tenants is, is awesome. Honestly, I'm, my husband's going to listen to this podcast later. And he's just like, I can already see he's going to have the biggest smile on his face because that's where his mindset is right now. You and I were talking before we are putting in a basement apartment of our house. The next point, the next thing we'd like to do within the year is get another house and rent top and bottom. And he's always like real estate, like, yes, the TFSA, the credit card debt and stuff, but he's like real estate, real estate, really like we're going to get multiple homes going or places to rent in a home. And that's what that for him is like, it's a long-term, but it's also, he's like, it's, I don't want to say it's guaranteed because we all know in what was it 2005 the real estate market crashed but he's like people are always going to need homes it's always like the guys that he likes to listen to they're always talking about real estate right buy a condo building rent it all out buy a commercial building lease it out buy a home and rent top and bottom out somehow make it work yeah it's uh and when, when you do that i mean the difference between doing that and investing in a diversified portfolio of ETFs is that in essence, you are buying a business. Mm -hmm. So it is buying a business. So it's not completely passive and you're going to get that phone call in the middle of the night or, you know, if you have a, an agent, you know, somebody who's managing the property that, you know, they might get that phone call like, oh, our, 
our, our toilets like blocked or whatever. So, you know, the, the, the heater broke. It is a business, but as long as you're not over leveraging yourself and this can, and it always happens when market real estate prices are, are soaring because what happens is we end up with more capital that we can borrow because our equity increases. And so history is filled with stories of people that overextended themselves. And they said, well, this is easy. I'm going to buy another house. Well, this is fantastic. The bank will loan me this. Well, I can get another house and I can, you know, I can end up with all of these multiple sources of revenue. But of course, the, it's so, so important to just make sure that, that it's manageable, that you don't overextend, that just because a bank wants to give it to you doesn't mean you should do it. So yeah, I think your husband is definitely onto a really, really good plan. This also, like, I mean, the information you're giving is absolutely incredible. It's so, so helpful. I can already see some of the audience or the community going, this sounds like a lot of adulting. I want to have some fun. Where is this balance of like, I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm, I'm paying off the credit card debt. I'm, I'm buying my, my, my index funds, but like, I want to buy that purse. I want to go out for dinner four times a week. I want to have some fun with this, with my money that I'm working really hard to do. Like, what would you say to them? Like, is there like a percentage you're like, well, keep this aside and, you know, blow it on whatever you want. If it brings you joy, like, where is that, that happiness for some people? Well, it's funny you ask that because there's two types of happiness in terms of how, psychologists or behavioral psychologists measure it determine one is called reflective happiness and one is called behavioral happiness. one is called experiential happiness so reflective happiness is if i ask somebody like they just bought a prada bag and they've got lots of prada bags and, and i ask them does the prada bag make you happy the, reflectively people will say yes oh yes that's why i do it that's why i buy them but on an experiential level it actually doesn't it the purchase lifts their spirit momentarily but it's really really short and it's like a sugar fix so again we come down to that hedonic adaptability now when we are going to buy something though i have this acid test and it, it's called the it's a litmus test that i call the deserted island litmus test and it's this buy something for you but don't buy something for other people so here's a case in point if you are going to buy that new purse or whatever it is that you're buying, if no one else could see it, would you still buy it? So brand new car, fancy car. If you lived literally on a deserted island and you had roads, right? You still had to go from A to B. Would you spend money on a high status car? If the answer is no, and this is a really hard question we have to ask ourselves and identify by looking at the fact that if the answer is no, I probably wouldn't, then we're not buying it for us. We're buying it for someone else. And so when we look at research on life satisfaction, it comes down to what Bronnie Ware said, that palliative care nurse, when she asked people on their deathbeds what they regret, they regret not being true to themselves. And so obviously money that we don't spend today, we can accumulate for tomorrow so we can invest but there is a balance here too. So money that you spend, for example, going out with friends for coffee, this is a social thing. And you can really enjoy that gourmet coffee as you talk to your friends. 
And it could be that thing that you just get so much out of because relationships are so key. It's not about the stuff we buy. It's about relationships. And if, if nurturing those relationships ends up costing us some money and we're enjoying their company and we're having good coffee. Awesome. That's money worth spending. But there are other things that aren't necessarily worth spending based on life satisfaction research. For example, you, um, you have a choice. You can say you drive to work every day and you stop at Starbucks and you pick up your gourmet coffee on the run and you know, you give a tip or whatever. And let's say it's, I don't know, five bucks, including tip and tax five fifty, whatever it is. And you drive through traffic, getting to your job while you're drinking this gourmet coffee on the run. There's that versus the alternative where, you know, you buy some decent beans at home and you make your own coffee. Well, that's going to cost you, I don't know, it might not taste as good. Let's say it doesn't. And yet it's close. It's a good coffee. And it costs about 50 cents for each cup. So the gourmet coffee on the run versus the coffee that you buy at home and you put into you know, your portable drink. As you're driving to work, if it's an on the run thing, you're not focused on the coffee. You're focused on like, am I late? Um, you know, I, I have to pick up my kids after school or like, oh, my boss, I hope my boss is actually nice today. Or I got this issue with a coworker. Oh, look at that jogger down there. Oh, she looks really fit or whatever, right? So your head space is not in the coffee and it's not in anything social. And so you're truly not going to get any more out of it or you're not going to experience that coffee to the degree that you would if you were sitting purposely savoring it, sitting outside, enjoying it, especially when you're enjoying it with friends, with people around you. So here's, here's the interesting point, Megan. If you take that difference of that gourmet coffee on the run versus having the coffee at home and you invested the difference and it could be like a $5 a day difference and you actually saved that up instead and you saved it for your future and you earned a return that was say equivalent to the historical market return of a diversified portfolio of exchange traded index funds that coffee on the run over your lifetime would have what they call an opportunity cost and that opportunity cost would be pretty close to a million dollars, which is like mind boggling that these little decisions that we make financially not to spend money on something or to curb, to, to cut back on something and then invest that money for the future can have a massive financial impact. And I actually use that specific example and I explain it all in my book, Balance. Like I go through it and explain exactly how that works. So that would be a case where uh, reflectively, someone says, I want that coffee at Starbucks. Reflectively, they think that makes them feel better. But experientially, it actually doesn't. And so in essence, it becomes a waste of money. That makes so much sense. And I, I, I love that because it's, you're not saying for somebody, if they were like a coffee connoisseur, their livelihood revolved around making videos about different coffee and they just loved this like every moment of that coffee that might be worth it to them and that might be their treat but if you're somebody who's like they just that social idea of like well I I buy my Starbucks coffee I chug it back as I'm driving into work and that wouldn't make sense because you're spending all that extra money on a coffee that you're not really enjoying it's not 
truly, truly bringing any value or joy into your life. You're just drinking it because it has a status quo. Instead, why don't we find an alternative and have coffee at home? And maybe on Saturday, Sundays, you do go and get that Starbucks coffee, but you bring it home and you read the newspaper or you read a book and you truly have that opportunity to enjoy it, but you're not wasting that five, 10, 15, $25 a week on something that's like not really doing it for you. Cause even $25 a week, that's a hundred dollars a month that you could be putting into your TFSA or your index funds. Exactly. Yeah. And what, one thing that I do, and I, I strongly suggest everybody does this. It only takes a few seconds, just download an expense tracking app on your phone. So it could be like mint or good budget or pocket expense. And my wife and I, for years, even before these, uh, these apps existed, I would just use like little, little brown booklet. It's always a little brown booklet that I would get. It'd be cheap. And I'd have that for the year. I'd write down everything that I spent and I'd categorize it. And the beauty of an app is you can do it within 10 seconds. So if I buy a coffee, I enter it in the app. As soon as I walk out of the store, boom, boom, boom. It takes 10 seconds and it's categorized. At the end of the month, you can see where you've spent your money. And at that point, you can determine whether your spending is actually aligned with your values. Like sometimes it's shocking to see what we spend on something like a specific category that doesn't actually enhance our lives a heck of a lot. So at that point we go, hmm, well, you know what? I'm going to consciously cut back on that. We, it's interesting. Weight Watchers did a study to see like what was the single variable that allowed people to lose weight most effectively. And it wasn't diet and it wasn't exercise. It was simply the act of documenting what you ate. And so we become accountable for what we're putting in our mouths. People that are struggling with their weight become accountable for that when they're documenting it. And we as a society become more accountable for what we're spending when we're documenting it. So I'm not a big fan of diets. Diets are, sorry, uh, no, no, I'm not a big fan of, sorry, budgets. Budgets are like diets, like they're boring, they're, they, they restrain you. you know, like a, a budget is just, it's brutal because you could need like a new roof for your house and you're not going to know that. And all of a sudden you're told and that blows your budget or you decide spontaneously that you want to fly to Bali and have this amazing trip with some of your friends. Well, that blows your budget. And that can make you feel kind of like a loser. So my whole notion is just document what you spend. Always document it for the rest of your life with an app. So it's categorized. Your credit card, a lot of people will say, well, my credit card does that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't actually categorize it into different categories. So you can see specifically where you are spending your money and how you're going to be aligning that with your value system and justifying it. So we end up spending less money as well when we are accountable for it and when we do document it. And again, like coming down to that value-based system, it allows us to determine whether we're actually wasting money on some things that don't enhance our life satisfaction. No, that makes so much sense. And I, I, I didn't know those budget apps existed and that would make my life way easier because right now I try, try to do everything on like an Excel spreadsheet. That's the one thing too I wish they would teach you in high school is like how to run a business because I'm telling you as an entrepreneur, I did not get an into it for the accounting portion of things, the spreadsheet side of things. It is a ton of work, especially when you're not like a, like I'm, I don't, I'm not giddy about doing it. Like it's part of the job that has to get done. And B when you're like 
I don't, I don't know where anything goes. I don't know the categories. Like my poor account last year, I was like, here's a spreadsheet. I don't know if I did anything of it right. And she was, <laughs> she was great about it, but it's, you know, like it's, it, it, and it's amazing. Like you said, like you would, I would look at things and be like, oh my God, I cannot believe how much money we spent on this, like in this category, which leads me to another question I have for you is where do you feel like it's appropriate to spend? I don't want to say appropriate because it's going to be different for everybody, but like when it comes to the health side of things and people are like, well, you know, I, I want to spend $2,000 on a bed because to get a good night's sleep means that I'm functioning really well in the morning, or I spend $120 a month for a studio because I like to, because I need to work out in order to be in optimal health so that I can go out and do these things. Like where, where do we, what categories do we focus on when it comes to like improving our state of mind, maybe investing back into our business so that we can make more money and like improving the quality of our health by maybe eating organic food over, you know, cause box food will, it will always be cheaper to eat at McDonald's than it is to in the short term, let me clarify that in the short term, than it is to go out to the grocery store and buy organic foods. Yeah, health is huge. So for for me and for my wife, most of the foods that we eat are organic because you have one vessel, like you have one body and and you abuse it and you break it down and you might not live as long. So we, we want to live as long as we can. So for us, we don't spare we don't cut costs on that. And that's our personal thing. And that might not be some, somebody listening to this might say, well, I don't need to buy organic eggs because they cost so much more. For me personally, I only buy organic eggs because they have a really nice balance between the omega sixes and omega threes. Whereas often most of the store-bought eggs are imbalanced and they have majority of them is actually omega six, not omega, not omega threes. And so for health, when it comes to my health um, and for my wife, we won't really spare expenses on that. Like we, we have regular massages, or at least we did. We were on the run, so it's really hard. But we used to have a masseuse come to our home every week. And we're both really physically active. So Pelle does, is doing a lot of like, my wife's name is Pelle. Like she's named after the Hawaiian goddess of fire. <laughs> and uh yeah, she does like yoga and she's doing a lot of boot camp. I do a lot of running and cycling and lifting weights. And so we get tight. So the idea of having like a weekly massage costs a lot of money. Yeah. But for us, when we looked at our expenses and where money was going, we asked, we asked ourselves, is that actually worth it? Is that aligned with our values? And for us, it 100% was. So that's something we need to spend money on. I think too, when it comes to upgrading things and here's where it gets slippery, like, okay, I want to upgrade my, my workout room. Okay. So there's a, here's a, here's a slippery slope though. Right. So here's a slippery slope. I'm going to upgrade my, my equipment. If you do, my question is always, will it give you an added experience? Like will it allow you to do something you couldn't ordinarily do? And so, I mean, you know, I have a, a road bike, a racing bike that's, I don't know, a thousand dollars used. And I could go out and I could buy a $10,000 bike, 
but with that ultra my experience other than the sugar fix component of me just oh i got another bite that's kind of cool the hedonic adaptability that would set in though would set in and then it would just be another bite like i'd be breathing the same way i would feel the same way and i think when it comes to like upgrading anything whether that's your home gym or whatever ask yourself if it would ultimately give you a different experience so if it's a physical experience would it give you a different physical experience and the interesting thing about that and that question itself and you and i are both fitness people is that we need surprisingly little to engage everything our body can do. Is there, so in my head right now, like everything you're saying resonates so much with me. And I have personally found for me to do what you're doing in my, in my head, it sounds like, like a lot of like internal reflection, right? Like you're asking yourself all these internal questions that nobody else can answer. It's like, Mm-hmm. in your mind is having that new $1,500 treadmill worth it. Like only you can say yes, because mine is falling apart or it just, it will, it will encourage me to go that much harder on the treadmill. Like whatever it is that you're internalizing in your head. Like for me, meditation was really that thing that like gave me that time to go inwards and see like, what is that inner dialogue? And do I want these things? Because I saw it on an Instagram story and somebody made it look really cool. And I'm like, Oh, like I got to have that because you know, it's helping them work out better. It's helping them in their business. It's, you know, it's helping them, whatever it is that I'm coming up with. Is there anything in your life? Like maybe you are also into meditation that you've done that have, that has given you that edge over, you know, like really tapping into that health side of things for you, health as well. Like what are some of the things that you also do to help give you that opportunity to be at the top of your game, to keep living a life that you, that you love so much and that's brought you joy. I think like anything that will center me is really helpful. Anything that centers me to go inside and not to look at I would be overly focused on what's happening on the outside. And so meditation is something that I've done on and off. Like I'll do it. I should be doing it every day. And, you know, it's like flossing my teeth. I should be doing it every day, but I don't. But I do find that at times when I'm feeling more, a little bit more anxious I will get into a regular routine of meditation. Having said that, there's just all, there are always moments where every single day I'll have these moments, these, these sort of focus points where I'll do some breathing exercises just to settle me. And it's fascinating the research on that, which I'm sure you're aware of that it doesn't take much, like sometimes just 60 seconds a day can have a really great effect on our health and our, and on our immune system and just, calming down that mind i haven't been and this is where i'm i'm really lucky i've never been material and so i remember telling my students um in my english class a few years ago i said to them and we lived in a very cosmopolitan place like downtown singapore it's as modern as any city ever gets like it's it's so much more modern than any place in Canada or the U.S. for that matter. So much more modern. Like coming back to North America is like going back in time. You go to New York and it's almost like you've gone back 30 or 40 years. Like if you've been to a place like 
Singapore, like downtown Singapore, you, you really recognize or like core of Shanghai or Beijing where the, like the business and shopping district areas, which is just, just madness. But anyway, it gives you a sense of what that culture is too. It's the buy, it's the acquire, it's the material stuff, it's the, the brands. And I remember telling my students, if you gave me a special credit card and you said, with this card, you can go downtown and over a 24 hour period, everything would be free. And um, there'd be only one stipulation. You couldn't sell it afterwards and you couldn't give it away. And so if someone gave me a credit card and sent me downtown with that card, I would have probably come back with, and my students thought I was nuts. So I'd probably come back with maybe a box of books. I'd spend a lot of time in a bookstore figuring out like what I liked and I'd come back and I'd have a nice dinner <laughs> and I'd come back, but I wouldn't bring the Ferrari. Like I, I kind of internally for me recognized just intuitively that things don't enhance my life satisfaction. I would have had an awesome spa, like as well, I would have gone to the spa. I'd have had a great like massage and head rub and foot reflexology, but I, I kind of intuitively recognized Megan, that stuff doesn't enhance your life satisfaction. So for me, when I wrote this book, Balance, I wanted to try to look at the research behind that to see that, okay, well, I know for sure that I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I was right about this. Like the evidence behaviorally, when we look at psychological studies on this, it's so true. And maybe, maybe it's the, for other people listening to this, maybe it's the, it's the meditation and the combination of potentially looking at evidence-based psychological studies on contentment and happiness just to keep us grounded about what truly is important and what does and doesn't enhance our life satisfaction. So I feel like there's a lot of homework for people right now here. It's like finding out what truly lights you up and what brings you joy. And I don't want to say like for some, for some people it is it is having that purse. And like for that's just them. They're like, I don't care about travel. I don't care about books. Like I just, I love to have really, really pretty things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like what you've been saying. It's like, find what, what is like true to yourself. And for me, like when you said books, I'm like, yes, like I, I remember when I got my first job, like I would take a portion of my paycheck and I would buy a new book every single time. And my mom would be like, don't you want to get something like fun or do something? It's like, no, like this is fun to me. Like I, it's a new book. This is so exciting. And travel for me. Like I, there, there's kind of twofold things when it comes to the travel. Like one thing that you were saying that really resonated with me is we lived for a little time in Costa Rica and it was very humbling to see the way that like the locals live. I also found it very ironic at times like we would be in parts where like people lived in like like I'm not kidding shacks with like their clothes on a line and like chickens and goats but then they would have like like satellite towers or like the new iPhone and I was like this is weird like right like I, I'm not the only one who finds it weird that they have the new iPhone that's better than mine and but they live in a shack but it's I mean to each it's its own um, but I, like you said, it's, it's the memories, like my husband and I can look over, we've been together for 10 years and all the points of in which we laugh, which we had the most adventure, which we had the most 
even scary times that turned into like, wow, can you believe that we went through that? Like, and not scary, like we were, you know, I don't want to like terrifying, like held up at gunpoint or anything, but like missing flights and sleeping in an airport and like credit cards got not declined, but put on hold because we were in a country that we weren't supposed to be in. So the credit card company was like, oh, like this is fraudulent. You know, like things like that, that we look back now and go, we will never forget those times like those are ingrained into our beings like and they were their experiences and they're fun and you know even if maybe traveling to another country isn't your thing try something new try a new restaurant that you've never been to you know if you're in a state or a province go to a city that you've you know never thought of or just just to do something different and to have a different experience it's funny. It's it's interesting you mentioned that, Megan, because we measure time based on alternative stimuli. And so what I wrote about in my book, Balance, is in, in the final chapter, I talked about how to extend your life without chronologically extending your life. And when you think back to when you were a kid, time went really slowly. Like, how long were you in grade 10? It seemed to take forever. And that's because you had, you, you know, you might've had like a boyfriend and then you broke up and then you, you're having a fight with your best friend and you're changing, your mind's changing, your body's still changing. Like everything about you is, is, is changing. There's all this alternative stimuli and it, what it does is it stretches our perception of time. And yeah, of course, one year in the life of a 15 year old is a bigger percentage of your life than one year in the life of a 30 year old. I mean, so there's a difference there too, but Research has shown that we do measure time based on alternative stimuli. And if we can learn new things and fill our lives with new experiences, it extends our perception of time. And it's as if we're literally living longer as a result of that. So when you traveled to Costa Rica and you flew there, and if you were there for like, let's say you were six days into the trip, when you thought back to the moment you flew and arrived, I'll bet you and your husband went or would have gone, well, is that only six days ago? Like, did we just land here six days ago? Cause we've seen so much, we've done so much we've experienced so much. And that's where that perception of time stretches. Whereas if we're in a day where we're getting to just mundane routines and we're not trying to learn something new, time starts to accelerate. And that's why when people get older, they often get more rigid and more routine-based and time flies by. And we all know it, like we're at work and all of a sudden it's Friday and we're like, we're, you know, where did that week go? Where did November go? And it's so, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that notion that you don't have to travel for this, but learning new things like that, new, learning a new language, as I mentioned, learning an instrument, picking up guitar, it's, all based on doing different things and sometimes seeing the world through a different lens. Before I send everybody to check out your new book, which I definitely need to get my hands on too. Is there anything that I haven't discussed with you or anything that I haven't asked you that you really want people to hear or to practice or to consider when, you know, maybe it has to do with the health side of things. Maybe it has to do with, oh, I forgot to mention this app for finances that just like changed my life. Like anything at all that you're like, I really want the audience to know this. 
I, I'm actually glad you asked that because if I'm interviewed by CNBC, they'll never ask me a question like that, giving me full leeway to go where I want. And so I'm going to go where the CNBC reporter would never want me going. And I'm going to go to our deaths. And this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but it's such a reality that we're all going to die and none of us know when. And so the idea that we need to live the best lives that we can, not just for today, but for tomorrow. And so bringing everything together so that we do that, like make sure that our lives are relationship based, not stuff based. So you're not based on things, but your priorities are the relationship with yourself and with your loved ones. That's, that's massive. Um, in 2009, 2009, yes, I was diagnosed with bone cancer. And I, and I mentioned this story in the book and there were people who came up to me and they'd say things like, Oh, well, now that you have like this, you know, life-threatening illness, you must really appreciate life even more. And I felt like screaming at them, Megan. Like I felt like screaming at them because I can't tell you how many people said that to me. And I felt like screaming and saying, you freaking kidding me? Like for me to recognize life is precious and that life will end, I don't need a life-threatening illness to come to that conclusion. And I realized that perhaps that was a little bit unfair. Like I was, I was being interviewed by a, a television network that brought up the cancer thing and, and brought that notion of what well, I must appreciate life anymore. And I looked deadpan right at the camera and they edited this part out. I said something to the camera and they, they, it was the only part of the edit that, of the interview that they took out. But I said, anyone that needs a life-threatening illness to recognize that one day they're going to die and that that could be any time. I don't care how high that IQ, the, how high that person's IQ is. If that's what they need to recognize that life is precious, then that person's an idiot. And they cut that from the interview. And I can see why, like, saying and calling somebody in that boat an idiot is not fair, because I know that we get so wrapped up in things that aren't important, and we don't often focus on that grounding essence that. We're all here only temporarily. And I think if I were to leave with anything, with your listeners, you know, realizing anything that, that I see really as important here. And I think it's, it's that realization that, that life, uh, life is, we're all terminally ill. So we have to live the best lives that we can and appreciate us and appreciate the people around us. Thank you so much for, for ending with that note, because I think it's, it's something that A, we all know it's true. B, some of us just try to hide away from that fact. And it's like, it's, it's going to happen at some point, right? Like maybe, hopefully we all live to 120 in incredible health, but you know, a, a lot of us won't, a lot of us don't. And one thing we kind of kept reiterating throughout this podcast was this idea of like health is wealth. You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the private jets, all the Ferraris, all the things. And if your health isn't there, A, you can't buy that health back. And B, you have to live like, you have to live a life that brings you joy, that brings you happiness. And that is doing the, the experiences that is buying the things that bring you joy. And it's also saving for the future because there's nothing like not having any money in the bank account, but you have all the nice things, 
but every day is a struggle to get to, and it brings you stress. And that in turn will make you sick. And then it's this reciprocal effect of now, like now you're sick, you have these disease, you have this illness and you can't, you can't go out and buy that back. Exactly. Before I end and uh, send everybody your way to check you out and to get a copy of the book, if this is all resonating with them, I have a five question bonus round. So it's just five simple questions uh, just to get to know you in a different light. Are you ready? Ready. Perfect. So my first question for you is what is a podcast book or resource that has brought you value and you want to share with the audience? I would say Marta Zaraska's book called Growing Young had a pretty substantial impact on me. As a cancer survivor, I always focused on nutrition and it's important to focus on nutrition. But what her book brought to me was it aligned with so many of what I thought intuitively made sense, but wow, she brought the science together to found where we found that relationships actually help us live longer and the better relationships we can have the higher the odds are that we're going to live not only happier lives but longer lives too no I love that so so much it's one thing that we don't I think it's one of those those pillar categories you know we think of nutrition we think of physical exercise we think of purpose or career but relationships always in my head seems to take kind of like that backseat. Like it's like, Oh, like I know it's important, but like, I got to make sure I have my green smoothie first. And it's, yeah, you know, I think if anything, COVID kind of really accelerated this idea, like we are meant to be connected in person. Social media is great. It's been so fun to be able to talk to you over zoom, but like that personal connection with other people and with yourself, you're not drowning everything out with Netflix is vital to having a a good life. Exactly. Question number two is who is a person or influencer you look up to for inspiration? Mm. It would be, oh, there are so many people. In my book, I talk about gratitude and how important gratitude is. And my model for gratitude is a guy who is a vice principal of the school I taught at his name is Bill Green. And that guy, it didn't matter what life threw at him and life threw all kinds of messes at that guy. He would always view life or circumstances with like a half full glass. He would always try to find the silver lining in that. And it was a great model for me. Like as a young man, it was my first teaching job working with him. And I'm telling you, he had stuff happen to him that was, uh, it was, they had some crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff that happened. And so he's one of those guys that not only does he intuitively know how important it is to see the, the bright side of everything and to keep positive, but he would write down like notes, sticky notes, like almost like gratitude journaling on his mirror in the morning to show him what he was, what he was, uh, what he was thankful for. And so I reconnected with him when I wrote my book, Balance, and I was writing a section on gratitude. And I was looking at all the research on it. I thought, wow, this guy, he really epitomized all this from the very beginning. So I reached out to him and I phoned him and I interviewed him for the book. And it was a, it was a pretty cool moment to bring all that together for me personally. 
I feel like everybody needs one of those people in their life because they are, I have a friend that's coming up for me right now that you just described her to me. And I, I call her sunny Sarah or sunshine Sarah, because she's just always, I mean, life happens, right? Like she doesn't dilute anything, but she's always that glass is half full person. And like, she just, if you're ever having a day where you're like, my day sucks, my life sucks. She just, shows you the little things are like, you know, I saw this, but I saw this butterfly today and it just, it brought me great joy. And I just think it might put a smile on your face. And you're just like, I just feel like everybody needs one of these people in their life. He sounds like an incredible human being. So helpful. Yeah. It's so helpful. This really ties in nicely to my third question for you is what are you grateful for today? First of all, Megan, I'm grateful that I woke up. And that's something for me, I know it sounds silly. Um, I am healthy. I am cancer-free, but I've always been so grateful just that every day I get is a gift. Um, I'm grateful for the people that are, that are around me. I'm grateful for my wife. I'm just so fortunate that I wasn't born in a worn tour society. I've never experienced famine. Um, I've been really blessed and I'm always counting those blessings. I, I love that so much. It's uh, I, I think we can get very caught up in, I'm grateful for this. You know, I know we keep talking about materialistic things like, well, I'm not, I don't have the Ferrari. So what can I be grateful for? And it's like, I'm grateful for <laughs> these socks that are so warm and they're so cozy and they just make my feet feel amazing. I'm grateful for clean drinking water. Like they don't, they can mm. be big and massive, but they don't also have to be these crazy out of the box things. They can be very like clean water like we take it for granted and there's a lot of places in the world that like that would be a luxury that they may never experience Mm -hmm. my fourth question for you is what is your spirit animal spirit animal no one's ever asked me what my spirit animal is is that something that i should know or is that something that like i make up on the fly right now just like an animal or something that you like identify with or like every time you see them you're like they just bring me so much joy like i just if i was going to be an animal this is what i think i would be okay no one's ever asked me that and i've never ever thought about it but i i think it would be a dolphin and one of the reasons is they they just look like they're always smiling (laughs) a dolphin is my spirit animal I yeah I like I have a dolphin tattoo I'm obsessed with dolphins and dolphins are really smart and like if this interview showed us everything like you're incredibly smart especially when it comes to finances (laughs) and all that stuff so I think you would be a dolphin too you're welcome in the dolphin family I I thought you were kidding when you said your spirit animal was a dolphin (laughs) no no I like I like I actually did have somebody come on the podcast who is like a, uh, what do they call it? Core core shaman. And uh, she works with spirit animals and totems. And like, I mean, really gets into that. But um, as soon as I started talking, she was like, oh yeah, like you're like, you're, you're definitely a dolphin like that. And I didn't even come out and say that. She was just like, oh, this is like what I see for you. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I feel like you would be one too. My final question for you is what is your favorite form of self-care to practice? Mm, my favorite form of self-care to practice. Oh, I like to recharge 
and I'm social. So my wife and I took this test, you know, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? And everyone who meets me figures I'm an extrovert just because I'll talk to a lamp post, but I need to recharge. And when I took this test, it actually revealed that I was more of an introvert. And so like having time to myself to read, to get away from just the busyness of life, to, to breathe deeply and to exercise. And I often exercise by myself. My, um, I don't, I do enjoy exercising with other people, but I do, I often exercise by myself. And that might be, um, that might be by design, just so that I can be in my own head, thinking through some of my own things and thoughts and feelings. No, I, I love all of that so much. It is, it's funny because as you're talking and I feel like people must be like, oh my God, I know exactly where she's going with this. I would love to know your human design. I don't know if you know anything about that, but um, essentially it's your energetic blueprint. And it's funny because people always identify as being like extrovert or introvert. And with your human design, there's so much more of like, like, I can look at your chart and be like, no, 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 that makes entirely sense. Like you can be a very social creature and like love to socialize and be out with people, but you like in your chart, like there's a specific part that says like, you need to recharge on your own, essentially on your own. And I'm in the exact way. I love to be social with people, but I I do the same things you do. I will read for like an hour at the end of the night in bed. Like I love to do that. I love working out on my own. I don't, I like going to studios and classes and stuff, but I'm much more better and I enjoy it more if I'm on my own working out. There you go. Maybe that's a dolphin thing too. <laughs> Maybe it is. Yes. Um, Andrew, this has been an incredible conversation. If people want to check you out, maybe they want to get a copy of your book or perhaps they even want you to come speak for an event that they're having. Where can everybody go and find you? At my website at andrewhallam.com. Perfect. And can you give us just like a little spiel about your book? When is it being released? What can we expect from it? Where can we go and buy it when it does come out? It will, it'll be available in all major bookstores. So online and, um, and larger brick and mortar bookstores. It's called Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health and Wealth. Um, so you could order it on my website as well. So there are links there at andrewhelm.com. It gets released on January 18th. It's actually kind of exciting to, um, the book is ready. It's, there are thousands of them in a warehouse. And what the publisher is doing now is they're, they're jostling and they're marketing. And so it's kind of interesting to think, oh, okay, as I'm speaking, and I don't know when your listeners will be listening to this, but as I'm speaking, I'm still, still two and a half months away from the official release date, although the pre-orders are up on Amazon. So yeah, I'm really excited about it because it blends the whole, I think the essence of what life satisfaction is all about, what success really should be and how it should be defined with elements of financial practicality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. No, it sounds amazing. And this is your second book? It's my, I've done two editions of two other books. Okay. And so I, I did two editions of a book called Millionaire Teacher, which, um, yeah, which became an international bestseller. And then I ended up writing two editions of two books.
books, uh, uh, two editions of a book for expatriates, so people who live overseas. But uh, but this one, I'm proudest of this one because I think it reflects more of of me and what I see as important in the world and bringing in the science and the holistic elements of it. So yeah, I I'd be thrilled if uh, if more people were able to uh, to read it and experience and experience it. Amazing. Well, congratulations on your book. And I'm sure everybody will run out and grab a copy of it when it's officially released. Andrew, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much, Megan. If you love this podcast episode, spread the love by sharing this with your friends and family, share it out on social media, and don't forget to give it a five-star rating and review. From the bottom of my heart, I am so grateful that you are here. Until next time.